What do you think it takes to build a business? Uh, a lot of inner strength, a lot of drive and vision and knowing what your purpose is and knowing your why. You need to believe in yourself, you need to believe in the, the end goal, what it represents to you, what it represents to the people surrounding you. So, yeah, I think you just need to be really dedicated to it. I think the best businesses don't just focus on money. They actually are filling a purpose or a gap in the market or a need that someone has. For We Teach Me, this is the Masters Series, where industry professionals share their secrets to business success. I'm Sadfil Shenelmish from Written and Recorded. How do you take a concept that started in your bedroom and build it into a business with its own location, employees and investors? You're about to meet two people who have done just that. Toby Scovron is the CEO and co-founder of Creative Cubes, a co-working space with culture. Toby converts buildings to co-working spaces for other businesses to call home. And he's just about to open a second location for Creative Cubes in Melbourne. It was at that collaborative workspace. By the way, Uber, I'm not sure if you've heard of them, started literally across the corridor. And so I'm surrounding myself with people like that and having lunch with these types of guys that have these wild ideas, it really was exhilarating. We'll hear more from Toby soon. First up, Hannah Vasicek, who founded the jewellery store Francesca while she was 21 and still at uni. Francesca started as a stall at the Salamanca Markets in 2011 and today has a global offering online with shop fronts in Hobart and Melbourne. Hannah says, there's no way you will survive business if you don't absolutely love what you do. Her key to success is passion, perseverance and conviction. I grew up in rural New South Wales, really small population and there wasn't much to do there. And I was one of those children who had way too much energy and my mum like needed to funnel it into something. So she actually took me to a beading store when I was 12 and uh, I started creating things with beads and I absolutely just fell in love. I guess from an early age, I had the entrepreneurial spirit. I traveled two hours to school each day on a bus and two hours back, so 20 hours a week on a bus. And that was when I, my first business venture started. So I actually went in at 12, uh, bought wholesale lollies and I'd buy a whole box of lollies for $20. I'd separate them all and sell them individually and I'd profit about $120 from each box and I was selling two to three boxes a week. So at an early age I saw the beauty of finding something at a cheaper price, being able to market it and find my audience and sell it to someone at a higher price. So kind of got hooked from there and still loved um, making my jewellery. So. I guess that's where it sort of started as a passion. I never thought that it would be um, what it is today. So we have 32 staff now and um, we have an online store that's shipping internationally and it's just amazing. From there, what essentially happened was I was making my jewellery. I started overflowing my bedroom of jewellery, so I started selling it to whoever would basically look at me. I'd take it to the staff room at school and force my goods on them. And then when I was 16, my family moved to Tasmania and 
it's funny, Tasmania, everyone used to think that it was such a you know, small place and why would you go there? But for me, it was the world was my oyster because it was this massive city and there was so much opportunity. So I started selling my jewellery to a, a gallery down in Salamanca and they were selling out and putting three times the price on my goods when I was 16. And I thought, there's no point them getting the profit. I should be getting all of this profit and um, enrolled in the, the markets down there. It's an amazing market and you meet customers from all over the world. At 16, I rocked up there with my little tent and my bag of goods. And the first time that I went to exhibit there, I didn't get a stall and I convinced someone else to let me set up on the side of their store. So from there, the first piece that I sold direct to my customer, I was just absolutely just hooked. So obviously your mum was quite a catalyst for that in the first instance. Were they encouraging the whole process and going forward or did they try and bring you back a few steps? Um, I think my parents were always very encouraging. I mean, anything that got me out of the house and out of their hair was good. But it's funny, they never saw it as a business or anything more than just, as my dad would say, selling trinkets. And so I kind of didn't believe that that would be a business for me. So at 18, I actually enrolled in uni and I did a double degree. So I did science and law, majoring in physics and maths. Who does that? Um, and literally, uh, I, I went to uni and at this stage, it's amazing, I was working one day a week at the markets and just one day a week of work, I mean, I would make jewellery during the week, supported me living out of home since I was 18 and every single uni holidays I'd travel overseas. So we had this amazing business, but I never saw it as a business. And midway through my degree, the first business was actually called Handmade by Hannah, which was a bit cutesy, and my target market was 60-year-old men. I mean, men, no, 60-year-old women. Um, and um, I wanted to sell to my age group, so we rebranded to be Francesca, and that's the name my mum wanted to call me. So from there, it started actually to take off. Still didn't think I could do business. My dad definitely, he's very traditional. He said that women shouldn't be in business. So I still felt like it was just a hobby for me. And it wasn't until um, my fifth year of law that I opened an email one day and um, it said that you're in the top four of a Global Student Entrepreneur Award. And I kind of was like, I don't even remember applying for it. And the next week I flew over, presented my idea of this amazing international brand which wasn't international and definitely wasn't out of Tasmania yet. But I had this vision of, of how big Francesca could be and I presented it at PwC. And literally just, I had five year projections of how big we were gonna be and like all this stuff and actually won. So I rang my dad, told him that I was going to New York, all expenses paid in three weeks to present the business at the World Trade Center. And he just laughed and said, you know, like, I don't believe you. So, um, And is it just your dad that you've maybe come up against from a male point of view that says you can't do that? Or have you got any other kind of experiences? Um, so many. So obviously I did five years of law and science and I got headhunted by a top law firm when I graduated. I deliberately didn't reply to anything. They sat me down they were in Tasmania and they basically grilled me about the business and at this stage I did, still didn't know if I could do the business full time and support myself so I told them you know oh I can sell the business or you know I can have someone run it and they gave me the job but they gave me a month to, to decide whether or not I should 
give up my business. They didn't want me working on it at all. When I decided to say no to the, the law job, I had an old um, teachers that were saying that I was wasting my brain. I had people saying that, you know, like, what a waste, five years at uni. Yeah. Totally. How, how long did it take to convince yourself? It's, it's an ongoing project. I still, um, the more you grow, the more stresses that come into the business, the more employees that give you grief, you sit there. Like I have that many moments in life where I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I don't belong here. Like, you know, I shouldn't have all of these, star these staff and things like that. So the inner critic never goes. And it's one of those things that you've just got to be mindful of it. And the biggest thing for me was surrounding yourself with people who believed in the dream when you don't because there are those times and you know I'll ring my mum or I'll ring my husband and say you know I'm giving up this is it like I can't do it anymore and they then take the reins and then when your employees start taking the reins and you know kicking you up the bum that's when you know you're doing something right. What about staffing side of things and knowing when to maybe make the first hire and when you're obviously got past the one-man band stage what was next for you? Figuring out how to hire someone actually what do you do? Where do you find this information to actually hire someone in the first place? That was the biggest thing. So like, you know, obviously you can Google, but um, it's really hard to find the basic dumb questions. I think there's a huge gap in the market, which I'd love to fill one day in how to really simplify the big scary steps. So I'm pretty sure I didn't do the most legal thing at the beginning, even studying law, you're not um, really well equipped to live it in daily life. So I just winged it, you know, asked so many questions. I didn't even know how to um, pay superannuation, but I knew it was there and it was racking up. But I literally was like, I don't want to bring my accountant and say, how do I physically deal with this? So you've got to ask the stupid questions. You've got to be an investigator because no one else is going to find out for you, especially if you're a one-man show. So that's the exciting thing. And when you start to thrive off learning things like that and being happy to fail at, you know, making the wrong hire and things like that, yeah. I mean, you did the rounds. You went into to trade shows and fairs and markets and things like that, which helps build the business. What other kind of things and tools did you use to kind of take it to the next level? Did you build a personal brand or anything mm. like that? My business basically doesn't wholesale. So wholesale would have been the easy route. And we actually started the first year out, I was like, okay, we're just going to wholesale and that's going to be the brand. But I went to a trade fair, spent $10,000 to get retail stores which would stock my brand. But then I realized I don't actually trust that they're going to do the brand justice. So I didn't want the brand to be watered down into a little homeware store and I had this vision that I presented on about us being this massive international brand. So I actually came back, I had all these orders to fill and I cancelled them all. So knowing straight away what you see your brand looking like in the future is essential because that week literally I winged it, found a place to open a retail store, it was $400 a week. That's peanuts in retail these days, but I thought that was huge. And I just literally opened the doors the following week, put Freedom Furniture everywhere and just made do. We opened the door in, in March 2013, and 18 months on, we had opened our huge flagship store. And it was from hustling. Like So I was working a two-day law job to ensure that I could pay the $400 a week rent, and then working the other five days in the store, direct with my customer and just absolutely building this community and every time I'd meet someone then they would go and tell someone else and we just have this huge huge 
huge effect. And we went from doing, you know, $200 a day, which I thought was like amazing, to doing, you know, like $10,000. And like it just started like catapulting. And then, um, you know, I sold the dream to my bank manager and I said, you know, I want to have this store that's in line with the vision that I had. And um, she believed in it. We got knocked back for our $75,000 fit out loan because we were like a nobody. She believed in me so much that she rang the highest person that she could get to at the Commonwealth Bank, told them about how big we were going to be one day, and they pushed through the loan. So literally, like, if you're so dead set on the vision and where you're going to be and you can convince yourself and then convince other people, they work magic for you. The day we opened, we quadrupled our revenue and I paid off that loan in six weeks. But you had to I had to believe and hold that vision there and convince everyone around me that it was going to happen so that it could happen. So, yeah, it's, it's, I can't even remember what the original question was. <laughs> you just got to hustle. You can keep going. <laughs> um, so what are maybe some of the worst moments within your journey so far? So obviously it can't all be sunshine and roses. Nah. Never, ever, ever get into business unless you 100% love what you're doing. So I have three essential ingredients for success, which is passion, perseverance, and conviction. The passion is like, there is no way that you'll survive the struggle of business if you don't absolutely love what you do. The qualifiers, you know, you have to do it for peanuts and still enjoy what you're doing and be happy because it's years of really hard work and depending on you know how big you want to grow it reinvesting before you even you know make the true success story that's a big one for me that you shouldn't go into business unless you really really are willing to i'm that person who i'm like everything will be fine you know i've got a flight tonight i'll probably miss it but like it'll be fine we'll get there and i remember one day when i'd literally just put all of my money into the store and i came in on a sunday morning to get my computer charger i walked into the store and um everything was gone like everything was gone and I thought I was on a TV show or something like that and I thought someone was pranking me because all of the jewellery was gone and then when I saw the till splayed across the floor of the shop I knew that we'd been burgled and my heart just absolutely sank you know I was going on this like dream boat of how awesome is everything and that happened and um, we were severely underinsured I think we were insured for like five thousand dollars because I was trying to save money and that was a huge, huge impact on myself and you know the business. That's one of the big doozies. Six months later, our office was broken into by we think the same person. It's hard to recover from things like that, but again, if you really love what you're doing, you just get back up and you keep going. There's so many hard aspects to business, but if you see it as a challenge and something that you can really you know thrive off, I think it's sometimes worth it. <laughs> And what does the future hold for Francesca's collections? Yeah, so the future for us is trying to work out how you can be a sustainable business and yet one which can really give back to the community, one which can bring meaning. And as well, we're starting to ask ourselves as a whole, you know, how big do we want to be? Like, we could scale tomorrow and have 100 stores, no problem, but how big do we want to be without losing the heart and the core of the business? And I would highly recommend doing this at the start of your journey, journaling down what your view of success is in the future. So how much money do you want a year? What material things, if you're that way inclined, do you want to be happy and successful? Because it's often that 
as an entrepreneur and a business owner, you get there and you're still not happy. And I see so many entrepreneurs who are, they're making all these wins and they're making so much money, but it's never enough. And I think that the most amazing thing and the true vision of success is actually getting there and realising that's enough. So the future for us is actually uncertain at the moment because we're not quite sure that we want to scale. I think that, you know, you go into business to be time rich and not money rich. And I'm definitely not time rich at the moment. And I think that's probably my, um, my future goal. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Can we have a round of applause for Hannah Vazicek? What a vision, wow, to be time rich and not money rich. She is one inspirational lady. In a moment, we'll meet another business builder in co-working space maker, Toby Scovran. Masters series is presented by We Teach Me. Build your own dreams with We Teach Me's inspirational creative classes. Enjoy face-to-face -face learning in your neighbourhood with weteachme.com. This podcast is produced by Written and Recorded. Build your business with a podcast that communicates your passion with your community. Listen to the enthusiasm at writtenandrecorded.com. And now, back to the podcast. Thanks, Ad Guy. Toby Scovran founded the co-working space Creative Cubes, who are just about to double in size with a second location in Melbourne. Before that, Toby built a successful pet supplies business that he sold as a going concern in 2013. This is a man who has been there and done that. And Toby makes an active choice not to go with the flow. His motto in business is, upstream is the new downstream. So, born and raised in a very entrepreneurial environment. At the age of 14, <clears throat> uh, I lost my dad, who passed away. And while that absolutely hurts, and still hurts, the reality is I don't think I'd be where I am today if I didn't have to go through that experience. As a young kid, my dad was a raging entrepreneur, dropped out of school when he was young, forced me to go all the way through. But when I used to leave my bedroom, my mom had plaques literally outside my bedroom. So my bedroom, then it was sort of like a hallway and then a bathroom. And the hallway between my bedroom and the bathroom was like littered with awards that my dad had won on a global scale. And so looking back, I really do feel like that was a very impressionable, every time I need to go to the toilet, there was that message reinforced. And one of the things that I really remember was my dad turned 40. Uh, he passed when he was 44. There was a cake that my mum had created for him for his 40th birthday, which was actually a photo of him on the icing. And there was a little bubble that said, I did it my way. Mm. And I look back now, like I think about the impression that that made on me. 2003, I uh, met this girl. I lived in a one-bedroom apartment. She was living at home. I bought a dog called Subi. Sim basically said, Toes, we just need a patch of backyard on our balcony. And that was like the light bulb moment. I don't know if it goes on or off, but it put rocket fuel inside of me. And I went out and created this thing called the Pet Lou. Um, and if you're a pet owner and you go to a pet store, I'd say nine and a half times out of 10, you'd see Pet Lou exhibited or retailed in shops. 
And so that kind of fueled a 10-year journey. After six years, we went to Los Angeles because in 2006, we started exporting uh, by the container load to the US market. I remember very clearly on a Sunday afternoon, we were watching footy and um, Sim said, do you want to go live overseas? We just started this monster business. I was like, yeah, kind of, but, but we can't. And she's like, well, let's put a manager in and let's train a manager over the next 12 months and let's see if we can go abroad. I was like, cool, okay. And so she says, where do you want to go? I said, where do you want to go? <laughs> and she goes, I asked you first. I said, well, I'm a gentleman, I'm trying to ask, you know. So on the count of three, she said LA, I said Los Angeles. So we moved to LA 2008, 2009, and we lived there for almost nine years. We've actually been back just under two years now. And basically went there trying to export and grow the US business. Um, talk about being kicked in the hairy beanbag. Um, <laughs> we went to uh, LA 2008. It was the peak of the global financial crisis. No one was buying anything. I remember converting $300,000 in Aussie dollars to go to the US. So at the time we decided to go, it was like 97, 98 cents to one, which was awesome. The day we got there and exchanged the money, it was 58 cents to one. So overnight, $164,000 just evaporated in exchange rate. Um, peak of the global financial crisis, I just fired my distributor, who I asked to sell into retail stores and decided it would just sell e-com direct to consumers. So he was buying at container load pricing, which was great, but then selling at retail and making like more money than I was. And I was like sweating. So I dismissed him. I said he could stay on and continue his channel. He was like, I'm out. <laughs> so I was $300,000 negative on the sales line. I was $164,000 negative on exchange rate, peak of the global financial crisis, and we just landed in LA. <laughs> and so I basically worked my ass off, and over the course of four years, we built the business up. And in 2012, I sold the business for all cash to the largest player in the space. I literally went from negative 460 odd thousand to just shy of 10 mil in rev and debt-free, cash flow positive, broke as a joke because every dollar that came in had to go in to fuel the next container and I was always container loads behind. Yeah. But at the end of the day, uh, come 2013, I sold to a company called PetSafe. I paid all cash for the business, I had no investors and life had begun. Um, and so joined them for a couple of years and then Sim, she kind of pestered me for a little bit you're all here, so she's not going to get angry. Pestered me for a period of time to say, hey, can we go home, can we go home, can we go home? And so in 2016, October, we came home. And now she's like, why do we come home? It's freezing here. So you talked about that moment on the cake, and it was your dad doing it his way. Yep. What is your way? And what are those key traits that have made you what you are today? I think resistance or resilience. I have this motto and had this saying at Petlu, upstream is the new downstream. Everyone's going that way. I don't want to go that way. Mm. Petlu was an amazing journey. I kind of miss it, but I also, where I'm at today is I'm sort of coming down the mountain and don't look at that as a hierarchy aspect. And I'm trying to get all the people at Creative Cubes either on my back or at least help them navigate back up the mountain. 
I'm trying to now create spaces and environments and communities to support people from having to deal with the shit that I had to deal with. You know, my parents wanted what they didn't have for me, and I want what I didn't have for my kids. And so I also want that from an entrepreneurial standpoint. I want people that have an idea that are kind of maybe about to jump off the cliff. I'm gonna push you. I'm gonna teach you how to build the plane. And then I'm gonna surround you with other people that are sort of like trying to figure it out as well. And then we're all gonna take off together. Yeah. And that's what inspires me. That's what makes me move every day. Yeah, and when you got to that point of where you were able to sell the business initially, what was the key kind of elements in that whole brokering of that deal that allowed you to sell out there? Yeah, so I took an idea from Elwood, Victoria. I took that to a global market of 150 countries of distribution. I proved the demand. I proved that we were the category leader. I mean, it's not a pretty space, but we're in waste management or pet waste management, which global crisis, no global crisis. It's well, not, there's money, right? It's not gonna dry up anytime soon. And actually kind of made pee and poo sexy. From a pet ownership perspective, I enabled a lot of people to have dogs, whether they lived in an apartment, on a boat, in a cold climate where their dogs won't go outside and they're doing the stuff inside. We enabled all of that. And I think that the data was there. The brand was in stores. People were loving the product, the reviews. So it gave the acquirer every reason to make the purchase. And for me, I was really excited that they could take the business beyond what my means were uh, without me having to go and raise venture to continue to go. Yeah. You surround yourself with other people with other skill sets at Creative Cubes. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that and your success as well? Yeah, so Creative Cubes is a collaborative workspace and we have aspirations of taking on the world, obviously. During my time in Los Angeles, we lived in a three-bedroom apartment. The second bedroom was for guests that were coming. It was a rotating door for everyone that came. And the third bedroom was my office. We had logistics in a 3PL, third-party logistics center, in another state. And so long as I was connected to the web, I was able to process orders. And sometimes I wasn't actually at the apartment. I might have been on the plane flying to another retail location or a distributor. And uh, so long as I was connected, I was able to distribute product. And so Sim and I got to a point in our relationship where I was so obsessed with the business and she was so obsessed with, or maybe not obsessed, honey, not, not obsessed, um, um, with living in Los Angeles and sort of like traveling abroad. We were young, we, we were newly married, we, we didn't have kids, we had two dogs that we kind of imported from Australia to live with us, but we were pretty free with the exception of money. And so, you know, a bike ride to Venice Beach, which was, you know, a kilometer away from our apartment, was a big deal. So she would bust in the door at two o'clock in the afternoon and go, hey, you want to do this? I was like, I'm at work. Yeah, yeah, I know you're at work, but like, you're here. But no, 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 like it's, I'm not here. I am here, but I'm not here. And then on the flip side, it was like, hey, do you want to watch, I think, 24? Would that be a relevant show back then? Yeah. You want to watch 24 tonight? Yeah, cool. I just go to the toilet and then I'd come back to the toilet via the spare bedroom and hear my email. Ching. I'd, I'd just check email. I would, three hours later, I'd come out. What's going on with 24? That was three hours ago. She's a fast asleep on the couch. Mm. And so there was just no break. Mm. And so I moved into a collaborative workspace, which actually happened to be the old Google headquarters in Santa Monica, which was really cool um, because Google had moved out to Venice. 
and this guy had taken over this workspace. This was way before any other collaborative workspace existed. I was called Rock, Real Office Centers. It was in Silicon Beach, which is a smaller tech scene to Silicon Valley, although Silicon Beach has now got bigger transactions going through it than Silicon Valley, like Snapchat. And so it was a real scene. And sort of when I immersed myself for the sake of our relationship, I, and by the way, we weren't in trouble, at least I don't think that, we were That was going to be my next question. You were all good? Um, <laughs> I, when I immersed myself in this community, I actually created a boundary between work and play. And it was exciting to go home at night because I'd kind of locked my work away. I had an iMac there, so I wasn't running on a laptop. And I was able to really compartmentalize life. And so it was at that collaborative workspace that the next part of the journey started to be realized. And I'm a very, very loyal person. But running the pet business and sort of working in this collaborative workspace, by the way, Uber, I'm not sure if you've heard of them, started literally across the corridor. And so surrounding yourself with people like that, like what's this Uber thing? Oh, you'll hear about us in a few years. And so surrounding myself with people like that and having lunch with these types of guys that have these wild ideas kind of really turned me on. Like it really was exhilarating. I can sense that. Yeah. And so I started having this sort of like, I love the pet business and I love what I'm doing here, but wow, this collaborative workspace is really something special. You're not only influencing or being part of and supporting the people, but you're influencing their markets because those people are actually able to springboard off this platform, which is a desk or a private office, to deliver their message and their vision. And so I fell in love with community and collaboration. And I'll tell you, the success that I had at Petlu was absolutely because I had an amazing woman behind me, but I was also um, able to rub shoulders with people that were like, changing the world and had that mentality, like just throw yourself off the cliff um, and see what happens. I don't think we have that here in Australia. I think we have it probably within people, but I don't think we have it as a society. You know, there's that tall poppy syndrome. We should be lifting people up. And if you have a crazy idea, I want to wrap myself around you and you can get on my back and I'll help carry you to the top of the mountain. And so that is, for me, the inspiration for Creative Cubes. And I hope that I can help push a lot of people off the cliff in a very safe, controlled <laughs> way and inspire them to just have a crack. Admittedly, when I was 23, when we first started Petlu, I'm 38 this year, we had nothing. I came to Melbourne with like maybe a thousand or two thousand dollars in my wallet. So the loss wasn't that big. <laughs> now it's potentially catastrophic, but I really do hope, and I really hope that Creative Cubes is a big enabler for people that are just like, screw this corporate job. I studied podiatry, by the way. You studied law, doing jewelry. I studied podiatry and started making dog toilets. <laughs> um, what does the future hold for Creative Cubes? Where are you taking it, and how are you gonna do that? The goal is to sort of scale that um, across Australia, and maybe a location or two throughout the US to help Aussie companies break into the US or Canadian markets where you know, I've got relationships 
and anything I can do to help the people. I'm a serial entrepreneur, but I really genuinely feel like I'm the people's entrepreneur. And I'm kind of looking out for the people within the community and hopefully I become a byproduct of that success uh, or their success, should I say. Toby Scovron of Creative Cubes, can we have a round of applause, everybody? Thank you very much. Thanks, Toby. And thank you, Hannah, as well. Next time on Master Series, how to grow your business from zero to $20 million. We'll meet the owner of Australia's leading safety training company and the founder of the app company that built the Tram Tracker app. Until then, I'm Sadhguru Shenalmish from Written and Recorded, and for We Teach Me, this is the Master Series.